to the Lord together. We thank you, God, for the truth of that song, that because of your coming, Jesus, that you make it possible for us to know peace that starts inside our own souls, and then we get to share it with others. What a wonder that is. We thank you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray that you teach us something new this morning. In your name, amen. Good morning, everybody. Have a seat. So glad to see you here today. You know, sometimes it just seems like Christmas uh, brings us an opportunity to add so much to our calendar that maybe it doesn't set us up so much for peace as it does for chaos. Take a look at this little video. Season's greetings. I love Christmas, but then who doesn't? Christmas is great. But the thing I've learned after doing my job for so many years is this. Nothing so great should be easy. And that's where I come in. I'm Christmas chaos. We've never met, but you know my work. I'm the unseen but ever-present force that stuffs your stockings full of stress and decks your halls with anxiety. calendar full with office parties and school plays, family dinners. I love to stuff your mailbox full of invitations to Christmas decorating contests and, I don't know, gift wrapping extravaganzas. Sure, you could just say no to all those things, but then you'd be a jerk and everyone would hate you. You don't think these things tangle themselves, do you? Sometimes you make my job too easy for me. Sure, you could have paid 10 extra dollars to get the bike already assembled. You're too smart for that. Ooh. I'm going to pass up a golden opportunity when it presents itself. This is Christmas chaos reminding you that you could take a day off and relax, but then you'd be a jerk and everyone would hate you. <laughs> yes, maybe that's what's been going on all these years, right? Anybody else relate to that chaos? You know, this is a season that can feed our sense of anxiety. I mean, even when we look around as what, in what, at what's happening in our culture, we see that, you know, many times we, we might even want to sidestep topics in conversations because it just raises tension to talk about that thing. And, you know, I think Christmas expectations can can even feed into this. Look at what the Smithsonian said. It's right there in their headline. This is the age of anxiety. Does anybody else ever feel anxious around this time? 
Well, you know, an article came out this week in the paper. I was so glad Ron pointed it out to me. It said this to us about Christmas. You are not obligated, listen to this, to continue holiday traditions that leave you broke, overwhelmed, or tired. What a great word, right? I mean, it's true. We are not obligated. In fact, we have here an opportunity to look at our habits, our traditions, and our thinking and evaluate where we need to cultivate peace. So I am grateful today for Psalm 85 because we get to dig into the word together this morning. Now, at first, when I saw this scripture in Psalm 85, I scratched my head. I thought, is this Christmas material? Let me just invite you to go ahead and get your Bible out. Turn to Psalm 85 if you brought your Bible. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, we hope you'll grab one in the lobby as our gift to you. And if you'll get the notes out that came in your program, they look like this. And it's going to include every verse that we're going to talk about this morning. You know, what we need to notice first first is that how this psalm really is a prophecy. It's, It's a foretelling. It's a prediction of how God would send us peace. Like we see in Corinthians, it's all coming true through Christ. It says in Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So for us to figure out how that is playing out in this chapter, we need to first look at the backstory of Psalm 85. So you ready? Let's dig in together. Here's the first three verses of Psalm 85. It says, You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. What is the psalmist talking about? It sounds horrible that God would be so mad. Well, what he's remembering is the return of the people of Israel from exile. He's remembering how generations before him, that God's people had snubbed their noses at God. They had not listened to his ways. So he remembered how finally the Lord had had enough, and he allowed the enemy country of Babylon to come in and take over the people and carry them off to exile in Babylon. It lasted for hundreds of years. And then while they were there, the people turned their hearts back to God and God forgave them. He brought them home to the land that he had appointed for them to live in. And the psalmist here is thanking God for that mercy. Now look at what he says in verse four and five. It really is a little confusing, but look at his honesty with God. He says, restore us again, God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? The psalm writer has suddenly flip-flopped, hadn't he? I mean, he's vacillating. Do you see that? He's thankful and celebrating God's forgiveness one minute, and then he's apprehensive about God's wrath the very next. So I want to say to him, which is it? Is he an angry God or is he tender and forgiving? Now, this is what makes this book such a wonderful curriculum for you and me to learn about ourselves because his flip-flop reminds me exactly of how I can feel as I relate to God. 
I'm not sure sometimes of what kind of face God has. Now listen, if you cannot have peace in that, you can't have peace. One of the most powerful things that you can do is to spend some time thinking about what kind of face you picture on the Lord as he looks at you. Does, is he scowling with his arms crossed? Or is he tender and ready to receive you? And the psalmist goes on in verse 6. He says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Revive us. Would you use your pen here this morning and circle that word revive? And we're talking about life here. When do you need reviving? When signs of life are fading, right? Did you hear recently about the woman? She's British who was revived after six hours of her heart being stopped. I mean, she's been hiking with her husband in really cold mountains in Spain, and the frigid temperatures were too much for her, and he called the paramedics, but basically he thought she was dead. But her organs were preserved because of hypothermia, and so they warmed her up, and they shocked her heart, and today she's talking about being able to hike again one day. Maybe not this winter, (laughs) but she was revived physically. Now, God wants to revive you and me spiritually, especially in this season of stress. When demands are up and expectations are high, we might notice more than ever signs of anxiety and fear and depression or anger or blaming or self-pity or feeling victimized. You know, I was listening in in my kitchen the other night cooking dinner to Christmas classics, and the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, came on, okay? Now, I heard these lines. It was talking about the trouble of life, and then it was talking about what fate allows and how we'll have to muddle through somehow, but have yourself a merry little Christmas now. I thought, is that really what we're relegated to? muddling through somehow? How do you do it? Do you call the paramedics? Well, the rest of this chapter gives us some really practical hands-on help for our souls to be revived. The next section of verses is where this psalm becomes as hopeful as a Christmas carol. It says in verse 7, show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. See, when you get real with God, like the psalmist is doing here, I promise you, he will bust through with his unfailing love. Some translations call it his steadfast love. If you've been around Twin Cities this year, you've heard us talk about this kind of love of God's. It's called hesed. That's the original Hebrew word. And that word just keeps coming up for us, starting back when we studied the book of Ruth. Maybe you weren't here. But what we learned was that there's really no way to adequately describe God's hesed love. It appears, that word appears 243 times in the Old Testament to describe God. And I, went, I enjoyed going online and listening to people who actually can speak Hebrew. And they said that it's really a guttural word, that you have to go, and then you say, hesed. And if you don't spit on somebody, you haven't said it correctly. <laughs> But you see, Hesed would take a lifetime for us to understand. And here are just a few of the attempts 
in our English language. Let's see that there it is. The mercy, the grace, compassion, kindness, love, steadfast love, loyal love. These are all words that we try to describe God's unfailing, steadfast love for us. But you know what? It's one-sided. And it's the whole point of Christmas. God delivering a clear message to this messed up world. Do you know that Christmas didn't start as a two-way dialogue? You know, like peace talks? No, it was God's one-sided, unfailing love saying to us, Yes, we have a problem, a problem that you cannot fix. Your sin has caused a breach in our connection, and I am going to reach right past it, right into your world in the most tangible way possible. I'm sending you peace. I'm sending you myself. Look at verse 7 again. He says this. The psalmist goes, show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and then these four words, and grant us your salvation. Would you underline those four words? Grant us your salvation. When we dig in there, we find a direct connection between those words and a baby who would be born. Now, those four words, they sound like a lofty prayer. Grant us your salvation, like we would find it in a prayer book. You know, maybe it's not a totally usable day uh, prayer in my everyday life, like, God, give me a parking space, right? But this prayer is one that we need to grasp. It's a prayer of longing. And by the way, that's what Advent is all about. Like the Lanigan family helped us to talk about this longing to see God's answer revealed to us. And to really grasp the full meaning of this psalmist prayer of desperation, we need to hold those four words in the back of our minds for a moment. Grant us your salvation. And we need to think about another day in Bible history that came much later when the angel Gabriel went to Joseph and broke some news to him. Joseph was super upset. Remember that his fiancée was pregnant because he knew that he was not the father. And he was going to divorce her quietly because he was a compassionate man. But let's just peek at that moment from, this, from the book of Matthew. Ready? Let's read Matthew. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, would you circle those three words, the name Jesus? Tim Keller explains that naming a child in that culture was a big deal. It was a man's right to name his child, and it showed control over his family. But here, the angel took that away from Joseph. It was a way of saying to him, when Jesus is in your life, you don't control him. He controls you. See, the angel even gave him the name. And now let's think of what the name means. Jesus. It means Yahweh saves or God is my salvation. We need to lock that in our minds. 
God is my salvation. So in a sense, when the psalmist had prayed that prayer, God, grant us your salvation, he was in a sense foretelling, predicting this moment when the angel came and spelled it out with the name of this baby. Could anything be clearer? The angel could have said, hey, you pray these words, God grant us your salvation. Well, here he is, the one whose name means God's salvation. See, I will never read those four words the same again, grant us your salvation. Basically, when I say to God, grant me your salvation, you know, I'm praying simply this, give me the one who is God's answer for my desperation. Give me Jesus. I'm going to trust his name. So coming to Jesus in faith means this line of decision where you say, I'm going to give his name the authority in my life. I'm going to drop my attempts to save myself. He is my salvation. He's my savior. I'm going to let him call the shots. I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to obey what he tells me to do. Now, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I don't feel like that. I mean, because sometimes I can be so into my own name, my own identity, wherever I find that, my own agenda, my own solutions, that sometimes my spiritual receptors are just dull. And when that's the case, there are conditions to my trust. And some people consider becoming a follower of Jesus. They may say, hey, I want to be a follower of Christ, but not if it means doing this or that. See, they're trying to name him. They're saying, I want Jesus Christ, but on my terms. But that's not trust at all. And some people can become so connected to a name or a label that they've been given by others or a name they've believed about themselves that there's no room for the name of Jesus to be given the authority. There are labels that are sometimes put on us like ADD or OCD or manic or depressed or disabled or handicapped or diabetic. I mean, the labels go on and on. We throw out labels like they clarify who we are. And you know what we're doing sometimes is giving a description as a way of helping others to keep their expectations of us in order. But the problem is when we use one of these labels to describe ourselves, they often give us our deepest sense of identity. Now, here's the thing. When I come to this name, the one that means God is my salvation, and I decide I'm going to trust the name of Jesus, that's when I get hope that I can be restored by this Savior. That's when I get to challenge the old name that I've been believing about myself. I appreciated reading Rebecca Lyons this past week when she shared that she had faced panic attacks, but she hadn't been given a name up for them by a doctor or anything to describe what was happening. And she said that looking back, she realizes that that was a grace because it kept her from giving herself a label that she could make part of her identity. And she could have given up thinking she could live any other way. Here's a quote from Rebecca. 
She said, I was free to try new approaches like praying for heavy doses of peace and courage to overcome my fear of being trapped in tight spaces. Let me ask you, what is the name that you may be believing about yourself It's important to identify that name and to challenge it. I have a friend who realized recently that in the back of his head, his whole life, that he'd been calling himself dum-dum. When I heard that, I thought, how sad. But then I thought, how beautiful and courageous that he could identify that and verbalize it. Because you see, living under the wrong name can cause you to walk kind of bent over, you know, push you down, but it doesn't have to stay that way because he knows your name. He wants to straighten your back and lift your head. You see, there's a lot of humility in these four words, grant us your salvation. And those four words say so much about surrendering, not to the old name that we've been believing, but to the name of Jesus that I'd like to use those four words as our jumping off place for the rest of our time and just refer, every time we say, grant us your salvation, we're talking about the name Jesus. And we're going to talk now about a couple of ways that we can apply his name to our lives. And the first one is this. We need to move in close to his peace. You need to intentionally move in close. In verse 8, it says, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people. Peace. Would you circle that word? Ron has shared the original Hebrew word for peace, shalom, many times with us. And I love remembering that simple definition he shared with us. That it was simply this, nothing broken, nothing missing, everything as it ought to be. See, that's the way God created this world. That's the way it was in the beginning, but sin came in and messed it up. And so God sent his salvation, Jesus, to restore shalom, to speak peace to us in a couple of ways. And the first is peace with God. There's a natural tension between us and God, and it's because of our sin. But Jesus took all of our sin in some mysterious way that we don't fully get And he paid for all of it on the cross. Like it says in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's only one condition. Did you notice? One condition to that promise of peace. And that's the word faith. If you will choose to cling to this truth in faith and believe that Jesus is your salvation, then God promises you peace with him. Now, let me ask, are there going to be days when you doubt it? Well, of course. You have an accuser who's going to say to you sometimes, do you really believe that God accepts even you after what you did yesterday? Or after what you thought about this afternoon? Yes, you have to know this truth and get in his face and say, I have peace with God because he initiated it. And all I have to do is receive it as a gift. Can I ask you, just show me with your hand. Is anybody else happy about that? That God said, yes, you can have peace with me. 
I'm grateful too. And then here's the second way that he gives us shalom, and it's this. He gives us the peace of God. Do you see that distinction? Not just peace with him, but the peace of God. It says in Philippians, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is where this psalm is so practical in this age of anxiety. Ron asked me last week how my preparation for today was coming, and I said to him, I'm not working on this talk, it's working on me. You know, because verse 8, when it says this, I will listen to what God the Lord says. Boy, that's so practical. In other words, I'm going to hear him. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to push back on the peace that he came to give me. I'm going to let him work his peace in me. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Take a look at what he said. Here's why we don't have peace. We spend too much time listening to ourselves when we should be talking to ourselves. Do you get that? That's how we receive the peace of God. In whatever situation you're facing, daily, hourly, we can learn how to challenge our old stinking thinking that just wants to circulate in the head by quoting to ourselves the promises of God. Now, here's something else we can do. When you pray, God, grant me your salvation, and you submit to the name of Jesus, and you move in close to his peace, next you can bring his peace to your world. Intentionally bring his peace. Now, these next verses are not on your notes right here. It says in verse 8, he promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not, listen, turn to folly. You know, when the Bible talks about folly, you can be sure that it's having some commentary on the way of wisdom. So these are the ways to be wise. He goes on, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Now, what does that mean? That just means to honor him, to receive this vertical peace that he came to give you. He goes on, that his glory may dwell in our land. Now picture that. His glory dwelling in our land. Now, now that's horizontal peace, isn't it? So now we're talking about peace with others. That's your next fill-in. Peace with others. See, when we check into the subject of peace in the Bible, this is the largest group of verses that we find on the subject. Like it says in Romans, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with most people. No, that's not what it says, is it? Live at peace with how many? Everyone. Now, there's lots of references to this kind of peace with others. Now, why is that? It's because this is the hardest peace to develop. Many of us are acquainted with the online website called nextdoor.com. I found that to be useful, right? Kind of know what's going on with my neighbors. But I heard a friend comment that no matter what the original post is about, that often it seems to erupt into some kind of crazy argument. Now, here's one example. Somebody posted, hey, neighbors, 
I want you to know I saw a coyote, so be careful with your pets. Now, what could be more innocuous, harmless than that? But it spiraled into a slugfest. Somebody else says, I'm offended at your implication that coyotes are bad. <laughs> they have just as much right to be here as your cat does. Well, the next person was offended too. They go, well, I'm offended at what you implied in your phrase, your cat, like we own cats. You know, animals are not our slaves. <laughs> well, at this point, neighbors with a weird sense of humor just start pushing buttons to see what happens. Because the next person posts, I think all coyotes should be shot. And the next person posts, oh, where was it? Coyotes are people too. <laughs> sure enough, at this point, someone's had enough because somebody posts, shut up, you animal rights freaks. <laughs> Welcome to nextdoor.com. <laughs> What's happening with us? Either for sport or in seriousness, it seems like many people are not lovers of peace. Many times it seems like they're lovers of a good fight. But this connection that we've talked about with God's peace, it changes us towards others. So look how James puts it. He talks about being wise. It says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It is also, circle this, peace-loving gentle, that means courteous, considerate at all times, and willing to yield to others. You know what that means? It's open to reason, allowing discussion. You know, this topic of bringing peace to our world couldn't be more timely than at Christmas because we are sure to have chances to rub shoulders with someone, maybe even around a table this week, someone who kind of disrupts our peace a little, you know, it, these are volatile days, aren't they? I heard a story that helped me to grasp the idea of God's peace that he came to bring. We love a church over in the Santa Cruz area called Twin Lakes. And their pastor, Renee Schlepfer, is a precious guy. He's become our friend. And he told about a trip that he got to take with a group to serve over in Uganda, just like we are about to get to send our 15th team. Isn't that exciting to serve in Uganda? Yes. I'm grateful. We have a sister church there, and you know what? This experience Renee and his team had happened in Entebbe, the very city where our team is going to fly into. They met a woman whose name is Goretti, G-O-R-E-T-T-I, she is originally from the country of Rwanda. And there in Entebbe, she runs, get this, an Italian restaurant. It's a pizzeria. She is married to a Dutch diplomat. Now, doesn't that sound like the United Nations all right there? Yeah. Now, Goretti was living in Europe with her Dutch husband back when the horrible Rwandan genocide happened. Over the course of 100 days back in 94, an estimated 800,000 people were slaughtered in that country, one tribe killing another and then retaliating 
And she returned to her home country to find that, listen to this, 63 of her family members had been killed. She was the only survivor. And our pastor friend, Renee, he asked her, how can you go on after a tragedy like that? And here's what she told them. You must forgive or your life is over. Just think about that. It's not that she didn't want the leaders who caused it to be brought to justice, but she saw how hatred is contagious. She had seen hatred and tribalism, this us versus them mentality, spread like a virus. And this woman made a choice to allow God's peace in. By choosing to say no to bitterness, she's letting her savior be the one in charge. And this is what she told Renee. I'm not just a pizza maker, I'm a peacemaker. You know, maybe that's contagious too. When you take his peace and you apply it, that's the glory of God in the land that Psalm 85 talks about. You and I don't face that kind of hatred, but we can see in attitudes around us when opinions get charged with emotion, when feelings become hostile, we can see how contagious hatred can be. And eventually, we're going to find ourselves in a situation when we must forgive or else our life is over. Now, when we talk about forgiving, we're not talking about being weak like a doormat. We're not saying we should overlook wrongs or injustices or that we should never take a stand about something that's important to us. But what it does mean is to be a peacemaker, a repairer of broken walls and relationships. I found this amazing promise about that in the book of Isaiah. Look at this verse. The Lord will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. You will be called repairer of broken walls. See, when you become a repairer, his glory is seen right where you live. Shalom, the peace of God is spread through you. Last week, Ron talked with us about sowing seeds. Do you remember that? It was in connection with your sorrows, allowing them to pay off in the long run by coming to God with them in brokenness rather than in bitterness. Well, in the same vein, refusing bitterness. Look at the seeds you can sow for peace in James's words. He said, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, we're talking about the long view of a relationship. Maybe you don't see eye to eye with someone. Maybe there's somebody who's hurt you. But when you plant seeds of peace now, it might just be a gentle word or a compassionate look. What it may turn out to be in the future could be in 20 years. could be a harvest of righteousness, reconciliation in the future. Look again at verse 9 when he goes, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. I want to point out that right on your street, right in your apartment, right in your cul-de-sac, God's glory dwells there because of you 
when you decide to be the rare one who doesn't point a finger of blame, but decides instead to plant seeds of peace. Now, this psalm we've seen is an invitation for us to draw close to his peace and then to bring his peace to our world. But, you know, I see a big crescendo coming as we arrive at verse 10. The shalom the psalmist has been describing swells into a portion of sacred text that is just beautiful. Listen to this. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. We might look at those beautiful character qualities and think, yeah, we need to work on all that. You know, we need to be more faithful and we need to cultivate peace and and love. And you know what? If we took that vantage point on those verses, we'd be missing the point entirely. Because what this is in verse 10 and 11, it's a gift. This is the part where the meaning of Christmas explodes like a symphony with the spotlight not on you and me and our performance, but on Jesus. This is poetry about the moment when God's righteousness became incarnate. His wholeness, his completeness united with his peace in one man. The God-man, Jesus. So here's the bottom line for you and me. My need for peace is not fulfilled in what I do. My need for peace is met in what Jesus has done. When he left glory, when he came to earth as a baby, when he went to the cross to pay for our sin, when he conquered death once and for all. See, it's all of his attributes, his adequacy that brings you and me peace, becomes a covering for my life and yours. I was walking last week. I'd been pouring over this psalm for weeks, and I got my shoes on one morning. It was rainy, and I got my dog's leash on, and I like to listen to an app called Pray As You Go when I walk. And imagine when I started out on my walk, how I was so surprised when a song began playing in my ears, the lyrics of which had been taken directly out of Psalm 85. I wanted to share that song with you because what it allowed me to do was to meet with God and talk to him about the specific thing where I was needing his peace. So right now, we're going to wrap up just a little different. We're going to listen to this song, and the words are going to be on the screen. And I would like to invite you, even though you have people around you, that you make this your prayer walk moment with God, where you bring to him what's going on with you. Let's listen to this together.
Justice will rain down from heaven. Oh, oh God, will you restore us and grant us your salvation? The Lord will guide you on a righteous path. Will shine down forth as a dawn. Your people will be called repairers of broken walls, making straight the path to proclaim his reign. so grateful for the gift of music for that group called Bifrost Arts who recorded that Lord we're just grateful for a moment to come and be alone with you the giver the grantor of our salvation Lord every one of us here is on a different place in our journey with you maybe you have never before allowed this name of Jesus to take authority in your life. This is your moment to just simply turn to him as a child would and say, I don't understand it all, but I want you to take charge. I want to learn what it means to trust you instead of trusting myself. I want your name to have authority over me instead of the label that I've been wearing. And for all of us, make it your moment now to say, Lord, I just give to you this thing that's been causing me anxiety. I thank you again that it is not when you change my circumstances that I find peace, but it's when I find you in my circumstances that you get glory in my life. And Lord, we pray that all of us this week could be planters of peace. Show us our opportunity to sow that seed, Lord, and make a difference for those around us. For you are the one who is working wonders in our lives. Thank you. Tell him thank you now for working wonder in your life. Thank you, Lord. 
It's in the strong name of Jesus we trust, and we pray all this, Prince of Peace. Amen.